Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Marty Dodson, who has written number one singles such as Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven for Kenny Chesney and Must Be Doing Something Right for Billy Currington. The Nashville hitmaker will join us to discuss his songwriting journey and give us further insight into Songtown, the songwriter community he co-founded to provide quality resources for aspiring professionals. Part one. Scott, as far as you know, how long have we been doing this podcast? Um, I think we've been doing it close to six years, believe it or not. Wow. Well, you know, besides just the gray hairs on my face, uh, <laughs> one of the biggest differences uh, between now in 2015 or whatever, uh, is that I actually have heard some podcasts now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, we, we, uh, we do often joke about the fact that we had a podcast for a few years before we ever heard one, <laughs> which is just hubris. And, and now I, I love them. Uh, and I happen to listen to things that are very much in line with what we do. I listen to music podcasts almost exclusively, hmm. um, which is why it's kind of fun to, uh, to spend some time with Marty Dodson today as kind of a fellow music podcaster. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Marty's podcast, Songtown, is part of the um, American Songwriter Podcast Network, which we are also a part of. And Marty actually had us on Songtown recently. So, um, it, you know, if you're one of those listeners that gets annoyed that we spend so much time interviewing songwriters because you really just want to hear us talk, uh, then <laughs> I strongly recommend you go over to uh, to Marty's podcast and, and check out Songtown. And you can hear uh, me and Paul prattle on about uh, how we've never uh, listened to a podcast before we started just doing like one. you've and, always wanted. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and probably his conversation with us is... Is uh, one of the least helpful episodes uh, that that he has because we are, you know, just two dudes with a podcast. He has talked to some really amazing people about really the craft and, and business of songwriting. It's a very practical podcast for people who are aspiring writers who are looking to get in the business and not get taken advantage of. Yeah. Well, you know, in addition to Marty's podcast, uh, I have begun to find that there's a lot of great music podcasts out there. It's not just us. It's not just us and Marty. Um, you know, one of the ones who, you and I were talking a little earlier about some of what we've been listening to. And, and one of the ones that has been my favorite lately, I'll just give these guys a free plug, um, is a podcast called Nothing Is Real. Hmm. Um, and it's a Beatles podcast. I've heard of the Beatles. Yeah, I've heard of the Beatles as well. And just when you think you've heard it all, and just when you think you sort of know all the info and the ins and outs, man, these two guys who do this podcast, Stephen Cockcroft and Jason Carty, um, they are absolute Beatles experts. Um, and I listened to a two-part uh, podcast on the 50th anniversary of the Paul McCartney Ram record, which you'd think, you know, two like separate hour and a half long sections. Wouldn't you get tired of hearing that? <laughs> well, I didn't. These guys are great. So, uh, yeah. you know, that's one you should check out. And all our listeners, if you happen to be fans of the Beatles, uh, if you're a fan of songwriting, I would hope that you're something of a fan of the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> or, I mean, can you can you not be yeah. a fan of the Beatles if you're a fan of songwriting? Yeah. Oh, and if you if that describes you, do not write us. I was we don't about to say that. <laughs> We're about to find out. <laughs> 
but uh, check that one out, man. Yeah, yeah. I, I was I was listening to a podcast. I think maybe you're the one who who turned me onto it called Producing the Beatles. Yeah, that that one's just amazing. Flat yeah. out amazing. It really cool. And each episode is like twenty some minutes. It's it's uh, you know a nice bite sized chunk. Um, and it's all about George Martin and the Beatles in the studio and the techniques they use and they're playing all kinds of studio outtakes and you know slowing down you know tapes so we can hear what they were doing and I mean it is some nerd business totally. uh, but I love it it's a great podcast yep um, you know I actually I used to listen uh, to my headphones in the morning I get up and and I run this little three mile route. And uh, I recently, during the, the pandemic, acquired two very large dogs, uh, German Shepherds. And so I started bringing them on my morning run. And for the first uh, few months, it didn't feel appropriate to be listening to something else because I really felt my full attention needed to be on the 150 pounds <laughs> of dog that was dragging me through the streets. Right. Um, and so... <laughs> I, I kind of quit listening to to podcasts for a while, but the dogs are, are are dialed in enough now that I feel a little more confident. So I've just started uh, listening again. I've been listening to season two of Cocaine and Rhinestones, um, and that's a podcast uh, by a guy named Tyler Mahan Co. And uh, he describes the podcast as being about 20th century country music and the lives of those who gave it to us. And he did uh, season one. Um, I think in 2018, I want to say, um, but my wife and I had gone on this big, uh, backpacking trip to the Swiss Alps and I brought one of those old, you know, small, uh, iPod nanos, you know, I, I think I have the last one, you know, that's, that's on <laughs> right. earth that still works, but it weighs nothing. So I like downloaded all the episodes of season one and I listened to that like all throughout the Swiss Alps. So maybe the scenery I was seeing at the time has really embedded like that podcast is particularly memorable. Yeah. But season one is it w was great and it just went away. And now season two is back in 2021, you know, three years later. Um, and I just discovered it. And now that I'm, you know, being able to trust the dogs a little more, I've been delving into that. That is a fantastic podcast. Every episode's like two hours and 20 minutes. So I have to do like three runs to get through one episode. Wow. Um, but this dude dives deep. So if you're a fan of like classic country music of the 50s, 60s, uh, you will love it. And if you are not, you don't don't bother because you've got to be really <laughs> into it because this dude digs deep and he uh, really like, you know, he does his research. He does his homework. He's he's kind of uh, an iconoclast a little bit in the way that he presents things. He's not afraid to, you know, push over the sacred cows. And it's uh, it's a great podcast. I, I love the idea of you skipping through the Alps like Julie Andrews listening yeah. to a podcast about Ernest Tubb. Like. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about that that I really like. Uh, you know, it, I I tend to like to listen to and and read things that are a little bit um, off type when I'm on a trip. You know, when I go to Nashville, um, it, when I was writing country for a while, I would always, for whatever reason, listen to Steely Dan huh. in between country sessions because it was like a palate cleanser. Interesting. And there's something about, you know, the dissonance of my environment and what I was listening to that kind of made it nice. So I, I actually, that makes all the sense. I went on a trip to Uganda and read a collection of Sherlock Holmes stories <laughs> on the trip. As, as one does. Yeah. So I, I like this idea of you kind of doing the sound of music thing while yeah. listening to this, you know, yeah. Spade well, Cooley podcast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And he actually did have an entire uh, episode about Spade Cooley that was horrifying. Uh, if oh, you don't wow. know who that is, uh, you should go listen to that episode because Spade Cooley did some 
absolutely terrible things. Um, so it, it'll haunt your dreams and educate you on uh, country music history, which is, you know, two for one. And ruin your vacations. <laughs> right. But it will take your mind off how tired your legs are. Part two. One of the rare Nashville songwriters who actually grew up in Nashville, Marty Dodson changed careers as a young adult to dedicate himself to his passion for writing songs. Much of his success came in the country world with singles such as Rascal Flatts' top 10 hit While You Loved Me, Carrie Underwood's Songs Like This, Kenny Chesney's multi-week number one hit Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, Charlie Warsham's debut single Could It Be, Blake Shelton's Doing It to Country Songs, and two Billy Currington chart toppers Must Be Doing Something Right and Let Me Down Easy. Never one to limit himself to a single genre, Marty has also collaborated with Tom Higginson of the rock band Plain White Tees, which recorded two of his songs, and has had his compositions recorded by everyone from Joe Cocker, who had an international number one with Marty's Fire It Up, to Cho Young Peel, a South Korean superstar who had a multi-week number one with Marty's song Bounce. In addition to his writing, Marty is the co-founder of Songtown, a creative community of aspiring writers that provides blog posts, webinars, podcasts, and even books, including two co-authored by Marty himself, Songbuilding and The Songwriter's Guide to Mastering Co-Writing. Marty, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's good to speak with you. Um, and, you know, you are part of the uh, American Songwriter family. We're all part of the uh, American Songwriter Podcast Network. And I know that you're doing some uh, great stuff with your Songtown podcast, which is Songtown is more than than just a podcast. So before we get into talking about some of your uh, writing highlights Tell us a bit about, you know, what you're doing with Songtown, what the vision is and, and, and wh- how all that works together with, uh, with what you guys are doing there in Nashville. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. So Clay Mills and I, my, my partner in Songtown and Clay's uh, a hit writer, written a bunch of great stuff. Number one's for Darius Rucker and Diamond Rio, but we were having a uh, coffee one morning before we wrote together and we started talking about this woman we had met who came to Nashville and uh, a publisher we had never even heard of uh, told her her songs were amazing. And he, she signed a contract with him that she didn't even read and basically gave him all her publishing on those two songs. And then she paid him $5,000 for two demos. Oh, geez. Which we later, we later tracked down where they did the demos and found out the demos cost him $300. <laughs> wow. And so we were thinking... Why? I mean, I grew up in Nashville, so I kind of take it personally of why do people do that? I mean, why are people getting ripped off in Nashville, which that makes us look bad? But also, why? what motivates those writers to do something like that? And so we started researching what was available online, and almost all of it was get your songs in front of Nashville producers or, um, you know, your songs deserve to be heard, you know, and they had not even... (laughs) heard those people's songs yeah and you know so we we realized that people were just desperate for um someone to tell them their music was good and and to validate them and if they would do that they would open their wallet and sign anything you know yeah and the thing we did not see online was any kind of 
community where people who had actually succeeded were helping songwriters, you know, avoid those kind of pitfalls, teaching them how things work. And so our original goal was just to help educate people um, so they would not get ripped off, so they would know how things work. And so we started a Facebook page and we wrote a daily blog every day for two years. So we had over 700 blogs that we wrote about how much a demo should cost and how publishing works and, you know, what's reasonable in a single song contract and that kind of stuff. Hmm. And we just developed this following on Facebook of people that were just hungry for the truth and hungry to know how things really worked. And so as that evolved, somebody said, well, you guys should teach an, an online class. So we did. So we were, we were Zooming way before it was cool to Zoom. <laughs> um, but but we, we would teach these online classes because we had members of our Facebook page that were like from Denmark, you know, all over Europe, Australia, you know, world, worldwide. And so we started teaching these classes like um, I taught one on lyric writing, Clay taught one on melody. Um, we taught one on uh, publishing and how that works. And we had some publishers come on and explain some of that. And it just sort of evolved into people were like, well, wow, we, um, we wish there was like a website where we could have forums and talk about different topics, you know, because it was just um, a little more difficult on Facebook. And so we created the website. And so it kind of all just happened organically, but it just... It started off, you know, those first two years were just, there was no idea of doing anything other than educating people and helping st- people steer clear of scams and yeah. and things like that. So now we've got this community, and we it, early on, too, on, on Facebook, we would have the typical, you know, people online who would come on and just make some ugly flaming comment at someone and, and that kind of thing. And, and so, you know, with the website, we were better able to... Um, vote people off the island so in the beginning we had to to kick some people out who couldn't play nice with other people and and so now we've got this community of people that just buy into the idea that if you're not having the success you want it's not because you don't have the right connection or some publisher doesn't get your music that you need to write a better song Hmm. and so we just have this really uh wonderful community of people that encourage each other um cheer each other on they write together you know we have people connecting from all over the world and uh, we just this yesterday had two of our writers got a uh, they have the number one song in texas on the texas country charts that wow that they they wrote at one of our events so wow that's cool uh, and it's involved into something way way different than what we imagined originally you know it's really cool there's a phrase that I, i wish i could remember who used it but it was just say that encouraging people to lift as you climb to, you know, as you're climbing your own career, to reach out one hand and to help somebody along, which is what you're doing. I mean, with the success that you've had and the activity that that you have, to then turn that to to give somebody else a chance and an opportunity and share the things you've learned is is pretty amazing. I imagine it must be pretty fulfilling. I was going to ask, have you seen results from the writers who've been a part of your community? But obviously you have. Um, And is, is this the kind of thing where you feel like, hey, this is this is a connection to a whole new generation of writers. Uh, it breathes life. I imagine it must breathe life even into your own writing to to sort of be chopping it up and talking about this stuff with with young hungry writers. Absolutely. You know, I, my my former life, I was a youth minister, and 
and it was kind of it, I kind of liken it to like when someone later in life becomes a Christian or something, and they have this passion and this uh, innocence and excitement for it. It renews your excitement for, right. in, for it, you know, and your faith. And it's it's kind of like that of seeing these people who go, oh, now that you know, now that I know how it works, I'm I'm actually making some progress. I'm seeing things happen, and we've helped uh, 15 people get staff writing deals, and we've got wow, we've lost count of how many singles that you know people have been on and that kind of thing. A couple of our writers had a number one song in Australia a couple years ago, and. So yeah, it's it's really fulfilling, and their their passion helps keep me going. You know, sometimes when I go, man, I've done this twenty five years. You know, <laughs> uh, it, right. it's it's fun to see um, those two people who got the number one in Texas were are in their sixties, and this had been a lifelong dream of theirs to hear their song on the radio. You know, yeah. so they were texting me last night, go you know, just going crazy, and it it's a neat feeling. Yeah, it's kind of like when they brought Cousin Oliver in on the Brady Bunch. <laughs> <laughs> and that that youth movement <laughs> just energized exactly. everybody. I felt like Greg was like on his, you know, it's right. on a different game than or like on the Cosby <laughs> Show when Rudy got too old and they brought Raven in the Simone. other yeah. little kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Um, <laughs> uh, Marty, you mentioned that you were, uh, you know, a, a youth director for um, some amount of time before you got into to writing. Um, talk a bit about your journey from being a guy who's writing songs, interested in, in songs, um, to making that career switch from where, okay, you're, you're no longer the youth pastor. You're now Marty, the professional songwriter, because that's, you know, that, that's a, a, a different career path, obviously. Yeah. Well, growing up in Nashville, I was, I mean, I had, there was curses and blessings from growing up in Nashville. Um, the blessings were obviously that I didn't have to pack up and move here. And, you know, I had a, a family where I could stay, you know, and that kind of thing. But the curse was that I didn't know anyone that was succeeding in the music business. And everybody working on our cable was trying to get in the music business and the waiters <laughs> and the waitresses. And, right. you know, so I, I was only exposed to the people that were not succeeding at it. And and I didn't really even understand, I don't think, that songwriter was a job or how you got that job and that kind of thing. And so I just kind of, you know, I, I thought, well, I'll do this as a hobby, even though I love it. Um, and then, you know, as I started thinking about college and career, um, I was, I decided to go to Lipscomb university in Nashville and they had one commercial music class and it was taught by a realtor. And so I'm thinking, okay, even the guy teaching, <laughs> commercial music class is not really do you know he's not yeah. songwriting for a living right. and so after that class and and it was he was a great person and it was a, a great class and I learned a lot but it kind of discouraged me from pursuing it any further so I kind of just dropped it for about 10 years and I, I finished college I worked um, started a family so I had two little kids and I woke up one day uh, about 10 years after college and I was like I never chose to be a youth minister I, had, I left out this part so I had in college I got offered a job as a youth minister and then after I got out of college they offered me a full-time job doing it and then another church offered me a full-time job and, and so I just kind of I got these opportunities and I had this family and and so I I took them 
but I had never really chosen, you know, never really said, I want to be a youth pastor. That's what I want to do. And so 10 years later, I wake up and go, life's kind of getting away from me in a way Hmm. of like, uh, you know, I'm not doing what I set out to do. And I'm not sure I want to be a youth minister when I've got little kids at home. I'd rather be with my kids and, you know, I need to spend more time with them. And, and so I read this book called What Color Is Your Parachute? And that book is basically how to, how to define what your passion is and how to make a living with your passion. Hmm. And that was very pivotal to me because I, you know, it had you answer these questions. And when I got to the end of the book, the only thing I had written down was songwriter. And I thought, yeah, you know, if I had known when I was 19 or 18 going to college uh, how to do it, I would have absolutely done that. You know, I probably would have not gone to college. I would have uh, chased that with with all my heart, but it just seemed too overwhelming, too intimidating, and I, without any connection to it at all. You know, and so that book was was kind of the pivotal moment of thinking. Well, I'm, I'm in my 30s now. I got a little more confidence. Um, and maybe I can learn how to do this, and and so I actually I quit my job. And uh, just I was working part time for my dad, who was building PC computers for people, so he would customize their computers. And I, so I worked with him doing that and hated it. <laughs> but there was a guy buying uh, computers from him named Gordon Payne, and Gordon was in the crickets. He took Buddy Holly's place mm. when when he died. And so I got to know Gordon a little bit, and I finally I had. I had picked my guitar back up after I quit my youth ministry job and I had written this song called Weekend Cowboy. And I I got my courage up one day and I asked him if I could play him one song. And so I played him that song and he said, well, it's it's got some really good stuff in it, but it needs some work if you wanted it to be commercial. And so he helped me rewrite it and he took me into the studio to demo it. And that was the first time I had seen Nashville musicians. So we, we walk in we sit down, he plays our cassette, and they all go run off to their ISO booths. And um, I said, what are they doing? And he said, they're going to play our song. And I said, well, they just heard it one time, <laughs> you know. And he said, well, they can use this. He showed me the Nashville music chart. And I'm like, what is that? That's like math. That's, you know, that's not, they can't play our song from that. And then they play our song the first run through, you know. Wow. And I was just blown away by that whole process. And so he kind of, I think I tried to become his new best friend um, and I was always asking him to write with me. So he started pawning me off on um, other beginner writers. And um, so that kind of became my early network of the, those writers that he connected me with were the people that I um, started writing with. And then one of those guys got a deal with Kim Williams and Sony and uh Kim liked what we wrote together, so he eventually approached me and and signed me as well. Wow, wow! And so, you know, from that point of kind of you know the the big bang of your moment as a professional songwriter into getting that deal, um, how did all that kind of uh, feed into you, you getting your first cut? Well, um, so Kim was an amazing writer and mentor, and he, I mean, he spent an enormous amount of time helping me. And and when I first came. He said, I had 20 songs that I had demoed, and I'd spent thousands of dollars on these demos, and I asked him which of those he was going to pitch, and he said, 
well, none of them. They're not good enough to pitch. And I said, well, why'd you sign me? And he said, well, I think you have potential, but it's going to take us a while. Huh. And so he, you know, he would work with me. But every year on the anniversary of my contract, I would be sweating bullets thinking, <laughs> is he going to drop me, you know? And <clears throat> But he wasn't paying me very big draw. And um, so he would say, you're pretty cheap. I'll keep you another year, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> so I think it was the in the fourth year of my five-year contract that I got my first cut. And it was a song called Can't Stop Thinking About That that the group Ricochet did. And uh, they put it out as a single, and it went to number 37. So I, I counted that as my first top 40 hit. Yeah. Um, and the same week, I believe, I got a, a cut with Lone Star, and those guys were telling me, that they thought they were, the label was going to drop them. Hmm. And I thought, okay, well, this the Ricochet thing is going to be the big cut, and the you know, Lone Star thing might not even happen. And so they put out a single kind of testing the Lone Star album, and it tanked really badly, and they told them, okay, you got one more single. And so they put out Amazed, and of course <laughs> that thing blew, blew up, and it sold, you know, three or four million records. And, yeah, right. Uh, so that one that one turned out actually being better even though it was not a single I've gotta find you don't care how long it takes I know when I do it'll be worth the wait with God as my witness and love as my guiding star maybe my on some sandy beach New York City Making waves on Wall Street No matter where you are I've gotta find you In 2001, you had uh, what I think was, if not your first, one of your very early um, top 10 singles with While You Loved Me uh, by Rascal Flatts. And that's the song that you wrote with Danny Wells uh, and with Kim Williams. And obviously Kim was uh, a very experienced writer who saw something in you and, and gave you a shot. Um, talk a little bit about actually writing with Kim, you know, being in the writer room with him, working together and what you kind of uh, picked up from that relationship that helped shape your own songwriting instincts. Um, you know, I think he had an unrelenting work ethic. He would come in and say, it was me, Terry Vonderheide, the guy that um, I, I started writing with that, you know, led to me getting a deal. And then a guy named Ron Harbin, who's a great writer, had a number of hits. And Kim would come in and say, boys, we're not the smartest, we're not the most talented, but we're going to outwork everybody. That You know, that's going to be our company <laughs> mantra. And and we did and he said you know he would write i couldn't do this because i had little kids at home but he would write three times a day and wow. and finish the songs you know what i mean so he's just pumping out hundreds and hundreds of songs every year you know and and his just you know his bar for what was good you know was really high and he held us to a really high standard but i you know i think the number one thing was that work ethic of just Man, we, you know, he would say we can, we can pass anybody with more talent than us if we outwork them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so that's the thing that I think stuck with me most. And he, and he was also just brutally honest with me. Um, we, Clay and I, when we started Songtown, we jokingly said, well, instead of telling people, you know, your songs are awesome, let's get them heard and get your songs in front of Nashville producers, let's tell people, your songs suck, and here's what how, but here's how you can make them better, you know, <laughs> that that would be our company motto. But that's the kind of thing, I mean, Kim would just tell me, you know, if something was horrible, he'd go, Marty, that's never going to work. Move on. You know, you don't need you don't need to keep working on that. We we'll just move on. And you know, he was just honest with me in a way that was um, helpful. You know, I mean, I really appreciated that because if he told me something was great, he meant it. And and if he told me it was horrible, he meant that. Looking at as your career progressed over the next few years, two thousand five brought a huge song to you with Billy Currenson's "Must Be Doing Something Right." Um, that was a two week number one, double platinum, his first number one, and his is a name that we've seen more than once in your career. How did that uh, song find its way to him? And um, just talk about the experience of writing it and what it felt like to get that kind of success. Well, that was a, a game changer, obviously. Um, Billy and I had written a little bit. Um, we weren't like hangout type friends, but you know we had written a little bit. And I remember one day we were sitting on the curb outside my publishing office, and he said, "Man, I think the label's gonna drop me." And I, I said, "Well, I'm thinking my publisher may drop me. <laughs> you know, we may be <laughs> on the streets together." And he said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at some places back in Georgia. I may move back." And and so. Um, Fast forward maybe a couple of months, and uh, Jason Matthews and I wrote "Must Be Doing Something Right," and we thought, you know, we love Billy's voice, and we thought, man, this would be cool for him. So when we turned in the work tape to my publisher, before we could say anything to my publisher, um, Abby Burkhalter was our plugger, and, and she called me and she was like, "This is the perfect song for Billy Carrington." And I thought, man, that would be cool, you know, because Billy and I were both felt like we were kind of on the, the brink right then. And um, so I was like, yeah, I'll pitch it to him for sure. And I said, you know, do you want us to do a demo? And she said, no, I want to pitch this work tape. I think it's magic. So she pitched uh, that to Brian right at the label. Brian loved it. And from what Brian says, he kind of had talked Billy into cutting it because there there wasn't really, at that time, there wasn't um, much of that R&B type Mm-hmm. feel um you know that's an example of you know we had uh, i liked some of the conway twitty stuff and you know some of those feels that just were not in country at the time you know yeah. and so um they pitched the work tape and uh they put it on hold and and billy cut it heaven knows there's so many ways a man be doing something right I just heard you sigh You lean into my kiss and close Those deep blue need you eyes Don't know what I did To earn a love like this But baby I Must be doing something Now, in 
it, that's back in 05, or I'm imagining maybe it was pitched in 04. Um, how rough was that work tape? Because now people use the word work tape, and I'll hear it, and I'll be like, uh, that's a, that's a master. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, this was you turn on a cassette, you hit record on a cassette player, and yeah. you sing it and play it in the room, you know. And, and Jason's a, a really good guitar player, and he's a great singer. So, you know, there were some little flubs in the sound quality wasn't perfect you know but it was it was a decent representation of the song but it was not what i i hear called a work tape these days right <laughs> right, right well you know you talk about um you know there being a bit more of kind of that r&b influence in that song and then you know looking at another one of your your huge number one singles everybody wants to go to heaven by kenny chesney um you know that's got sort of a heavy calypso feel to it you know the whalers appear on that record which is wild um you know so you're talking about some influences here and and i want to come back and and dig into everybody wants to go to heaven a little more but before we do just just thinking about how maybe these aren't the most kind of traditional um country influences that you're incorporating you know like paul and i you grew up in nashville and although i love classic country music today i wanted nothing to do with country music when i was growing up as a kid in nashville like it wasn't the cool thing and and you know i didn't you know embrace country music until i was an adult um and i'm curious if your experience was similar if you were kind of bringing in different things that had influenced you in your formative years into kind of the country world or if you had already kind of been a you know a a country fan as a kid growing up in nashville yeah, I was, I was already a country fan. I, I um, it's a long story we don't have to get into, but my dad had a prescription drug problem, and music was kind of my refuge. I, w- I would go in my room, and I had I had a record player and a bunch of vinyl records, but I also had a like a nine band uh, radio, and so I would listen to the Grand Ole Opry on the weekends, and you know, hear crazy songs like "Take an Old Cold Tater and Wait," and you know, <laughs> or, uh, Little Jimmy Dickens. Yeah, peel me an ant or toss me a peanut, those those kind of things, you know. And I just thought, man, that's crazy. I'd love to write something fun like that. But, you know, so I was I I learned a lot of stuff from the Opry, and then my best friend was huge into George Jones and Tammy Wynette and Bill Monroe, and so you know I I grew up on a lot of that. My favorite artists after I was probably a teenager were people like John Denver. I really appreciated his songs and songwriting, and I had uh, grow uh, growing up in Nashville. My my farthest I had ever been from Nashville was Atlanta, huh. and so to hear John Denver songs about Colorado and snow and all these things was just like, man, that's just a whole different world to me. And but you know, and then I love I grew to love the Eagles and um, James Taylor, Carol King, that kind of stuff. So I was always into those artists that really liked. Uh, great songs but they tended to be country artists you know Uh, my whole life yeah interesting um you know talking about um everybody wants to go to heaven um as a songwriter you know you you write day in day out you're you know you're having appointments you're in the writer room you're in the demo studio you know you're working on great song after great song and probably plenty of stinkers along the way too um but there's only so many uh of those songs that actually 
get out and get heard. And I'm sure for, you know, most songwriters, that's a nerve wracking process. And I understand that that's a song that even though it was a number one for Kenny Chesney, I understand that it had a a previous life that maybe didn't work out uh, as you had hoped. Talk a little bit about the uh, emotional <laughs> roller coaster of a song like that, where um, you know you don't really quite know where it's ultimately going to land or, or how it's going to work out. Yeah, that was quite a wild ride. Um, so the story was George Strait had cut it and uh, played it for Kenny on his bus. So I guess he played Kenny everything he had cut, but he had overcut by several songs. And so when the record came out, Kenny bought the record and um, noticed that Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven was not on there. We had pitched that to Kenny, like every kind of way. I, I guess it had never gotten to him, but like the producers, label, everybody had passed on that song for Kenny. <clears throat> and so he heard it from George. So I, I said George was my song plugger on that song. <laughs> um, so when Kenny realized it didn't come out on George's record, uh, he called the publishers and said, hey, is this song available? Because I heard it from George and I loved it. And we had been told by someone in the camp of George that we should go ahead and pitch it because he wasn't going to use it. So we said, sure, you can have it. And so he cut it. And then it was a week or two later, we get a call from somebody in George's camp, and they said, hey, he decided he does want that song. And um, that he played, I guess he played it for his dad, and his dad loved it. And so he was going to put it on the next record. Huh. And we're like, well, we got a problem. <laughs> you know, we <laughs> we played it for Kenny. And and so um, there was some tension between those two camps. Uh, let's leave it there <laughs> over that. But the day Kenny put it out um, on iTunes, I woke up that morning, I turned on iTunes, and there was a big banner at the top that said, Kenny Chesney, new single, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven. And then it faded out, and another banner came up and said, George Strait, new single, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven. And I'm like, what? oh, no, <laughs> what, what is going on? And um, so George put his out. I guess after Kenny put it out that morning, George was able to put it out under a compulsory license, so they put it out as well. Wow. So it, it was a mess. and I, we, we were worried it was going to mess something up, but it wound up not, you know. Yeah. But... As a songwriter, you're, you're biting your fingernails going, what is going on and how, how's this going to turn out? <laughs> yeah, you're probably simultaneously thinking, okay, one of you guys needs to back off because we want this song to do well. And you also <laughs> have to be going, how did I wind up being the guy that has Kenny Chesney and George Strait in a little war over my song? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I never wanted to cause a war between anyone. With that song, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but if somebody's going to fight over you, yeah, you, you could do a lot worse. You know. Well, I was going to say, these, these strange, you know, single happenings seem to keep happening to you. Uh, I was, you know, thinking about songs like this from 2009. I mean, that's, that thing was a top 40 country single, but I understand that it wasn't actually officially released as a single. Is that right? Right. And, and 
you know, I didn't, I wasn't even aware that it was a top 40 single. I know that a bunch of her songs from her, that record charted, but I never paid attention to how high we got on that one. I should look that up. You just got, yeah, like, she hit did singles it. falling out of your pockets. You know? <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but she did it on like three consecutive award shows. And so we're thinking, yeah, we're getting the single. And then they told us that we were getting the single and then something happened that we did not. So that was a heartbreaker. Mm. Hmm. Wow. Well, I'm sorry that sorry that I brought that up. Then, yeah, way to bring way to bring up a painful, painful subject there, sorry. Paul. <laughs> no, maybe maybe I have a top forty single I don't know about. I'll go find out. <laughs> um, well, let's talk a bit about you know plain white tees because I know that you wrote a couple of songs um, on their Wonders of the Younger album with frontman Tom Higginson, and mm-hmm. um, you know that's something that's a little different. That's not something that you you typically expect to see on a, a Nashville songwriter's resume. Tell us a bit about how that came about and and how that process kind of unfolded. Well, I'm primarily a lyricist. Um, so I've gotten myself into all kinds of weird things in life by just writing with people that are all over the place musically. But on that one, um, I had done a show at the Bluebird, and Tom was there uh, with Chris Tompkins, I think. I think they were writing together. And um, after the show, Tom just came up, and uh, I knew who he was. But he introduced himself, and he said, man, I really loved your lyrics. Would you be interested in writing a couple things for our next record? And I was like, sure, you know. I knew Delilah and, you know, some of their huge things. And so we wound up uh, getting together. He wanted to write at 9 o'clock at night and, you know, with little <laughs> kids. That was my bedtime. But like, <laughs> I've got to do I've got to do this. So we wrote from probably 9 o'clock until 3 or 4 in the morning. Oh, my gosh. And, um, wrote, I think, I think both of those songs we wrote in that session that they cut. But he, you know, I would just have to to tell him on the song called killer that I have on there. It was more of a, um, we were able, I, I was able to write it lyrically more in a country way and that it's, it, it follows a trajectory more clearly, but on, uh, Cirque Don LaRue, he said, okay, I want this to be weird and out there and it, nothing like anything you or I have ever written. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, okay, you just tell me, the melody you know that you want to do and I and I'll write some stuff for it so we basically kind of wrote that song in segments like we we would just take a section and he'd go okay I want to do this thing like I'm talking through a megaphone like I'm a barker at a circus you know and so we you know I would craft something he'd go no 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 I don't need to say that you know it needs to be weirder so we would you know we just make it, it weirder and and less maybe less clear but that song was kind of just like, it's almost like a puzzle of, of pieces that we put together. Like 
Well, you know, that same year you had Let Me Down Easy, an, another number one with Billy Carrington. And I, I'm looking at, at the names that you've written these hits with. And, I, and this one, we've got Mark Nestler and Jennifer Hansen. You know, what I'm not seeing is a whole lot of just the same team over and over again. And I'm wondering, is that sort of a function of you being primarily a lyricist and then you find yourself with other people of different skills and creating these different teams? Or, you know, why do you think you've had such kind of a diverse portfolio of co-writers over the years? Now that you mention that, maybe I should never write with someone twice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, First time's you know, a charm. I, I've never thought about that. Well, you know, Mark and I, Mark Nessler and I have written together every other week for 20 years, and we had, mm. <clears throat> we've had we had a number of cuts and, and some other singles, but nothing as big as Let Me Down Easy together. Yeah. Um, so he's probably my co-writer with the most um, success together. But I don't know. I just love people and i love different groups of people so I, I i tend to just write all over the place with you know with people i enjoy and i enjoy kind of mixing and matching you know so like i might bring mark in with paul overstreet or something and and just kind of create different rooms because i think that inspires me yeah um you know over the 20 years mark and i've discovered that we have to continually bring in new people or we kind of start writing the same things you know same style of things Right. And so we're always trying to mix that up. So I guess it's more, it's probably just a factor of it's more inspiring to me to keep mixing things up and, and trying new things. Yeah. Well, speaking of trying new things, um, I don't know that we've ever had our songwriter on the show who's had the number one single in South Korea, uh, a song that was also named Song of the Year at the Mnet Asian Music Awards. Um, and I'm talking about your song, Bounce, by an artist named Cho Young Peel. Um, how in the world did this come about? <laughs> well, so many things, great things in my life have just come by being open to opportunity. So my publisher at the time asked me if I wanted to go to a songwriting camp in Sweden and being that guy who had only traveled to Atlanta as a child, I was like, obviously I'll go to Sweden. You know, I just want to see Sweden. Song camp will just be a, a extra bonus, you know? So I went to that camp and, uh, it was at an old coffee mill and they had like in every little nook and cranny of this old coffee mill, they had, they called them producers. We would call them track guys in Nashville now or, or girls. And um, so every one of those rooms had someone who was like a self-contained, I mean, they sang amazingly, they played every instrument, they could like pump those tracks out, just like nobody's business. And so at this camp, we would, in the morning, we'd go in and write with a producer and another writer or artist, and then the producer would do the recording, and that night at 6 o'clock, we'd have a listening session where we would drink wine and listen to everybody's finished songs <clears throat> so bounce was one of those songs we wrote and we kind of had in mind that it might be like a, a commercial like a you know target commercial or bounce um, laundry sheets or something like that because it just kind of had that playful feel uh and just said you make me bounce you know there's no nothing that we thought was extraordinary about the song but that it might have possibilities like that and i didn't know at the time but those guys at that in that writing group were huge in K-pop and J-pop. I mean, they were just getting all kinds of cuts in that world. And I didn't even, I didn't know how that worked or anything, but there was an, that Cho Young Peel was um, an artist that they described as 
the Paul McCartney of South Korea. That and ten years prior, he his wife had passed away, and he said that he would never sing again. Oh, and so he decides he's going to make a comeback, but he wants a totally different style of of music, and somehow they got this song bounce into his camp's hands and he went crazy over it. And so they had a, a Korean interpreter that rewrote the verses. They used our chorus in English, but the, they rewrote the verses to be sad, which our, our song was not sad at all, but I guess it was sort of a tribute to his wife and losing her and, and kind of losing his voice for 10 years in a way. And so they, you know, it's like if Paul McCartney went away and came back after 10 years, it would be a, that first single is going to go crazy. And that's what it yeah, did. Right. So they released it um, the week after Psy released his second single. And he had debuted at number one the week before. And we came in at number one and stayed there for I don't, I don't know how many weeks. I think it was six weeks or longer that we stayed number one. But it was crazy. And it was written in English, you know, n- no intention of ever having anything like that go on with it. Wow. Take that, Psy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you continued having hits in multiple hemispheres um, after that one. You know, you, you're you're back over here with um, Charlie Worsham's uh, debut single "Could It Be." But I want to ask you about a song from 2016, uh, doing it to country songs, uh, Blake Shelton song. That um, that was on the "If I'm Honest" album, and it it features the Oak Ridge Boys, and it was written with Jacob Lida and Paul Overstreet. Around old 5:30, my buddies and I. Just looking at the names Oak Ridge Boys and Paul Overstreet, both of those have great like significance to me in terms of what they've meant for you know country music. Um, was it kind of fun pulling in some? I, I, I hate using a word like traditional with somebody like Overstreet because it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. But in a sense, <laughs> a Randy Travis record kind of does feel traditional now. Um, to right. pull in those pull in those traditional elements on you know a newer artist like Blake Shelton. Yeah, you know, I mean, Paul is just. He's one of the funniest people I've ever met, and he's we're great friends. We've been all over the world together playing shows and, and things. And so, you know, we always have fun. And, and so when he had that idea and we're like, ah, can we get away with that, you know, <laughs> saying doing it to country songs in our, in our song. and But, he you know, he just thought it was so funny, and he sold us on it. Um, but I think what he brings is, is a um, – it's it's classic country writing, you know. I mean, to me, I, I just love his writing style and what he brings. So, you know, that one uh, was maybe a little more traditional than Blake would typically do, but it it was um, contemporary enough just to feel like a classic. I think where it could have been, you know, from the era of Randy Travis, or it could be, you know, it could work now. And I think that's yeah. kind of the magic Paul brings. That's amazing just to to kind of connect with that stream in a way you know we we've often talked on the show about how nashville has kind of a built-in mentorship program where you know writers who are experienced um writers are eager to write with younger writers because they know exactly what to do with a song 
you know, um, but they're looking for ideas and it's cool to see somebody like, you know, Paul Overstreet is going to write with a writer like yourself of a little bit younger generation. And you, of course, have already had all this success and are in turn, you know, working with folks who are younger than you and, you know, encouraging folks who are coming up. And you see this sort of like this chain, um, this progression that happens in Nashville of where there's always kind of a, a looking forward and a looking backward at the same time. And I think that's a really unique um, thing in Nashville's songwriting community that's less, I mean, sure it's competitive, but it, it seems like less of kind of a dog eat dog world maybe than some other songwriting, uh, centers, um, where you really do kind of have the previous generation that benefits from, and also guides kind of, you know, the, the next generation. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's really important to me too, because I, you know, people like, Kim Williams and Paul Overstreet and uh, Tom Shapiro, just to list a few, wrote with me when I had very little going on, you know, hmm. and and Tom even told me, you know, I, I had known him because he shared an office um, building with Jim Collins, and Jim and I would write, and um, so I, I knew Tom, but I knew better than to ask him to write because, you know, I knew how busy he was, and he'd already had, you know, 40 top 10 hits, and so I thought, you know, what's it going to take to write with somebody like that? And I overheard him one day say, you know, the hardest thing about being a, a hit songwriter is having a hit idea. And he said, if I had one of those every day, I could write a hit every day. And I thought, okay, there's the golden ticket. You know, I felt like a kid in Willy Wonka. Like, I got the golden <laughs> ticket. So I went and I worked on ideas until I came up with something and I would go to the ASCAP and BMI databases and search for those titles to see how unique they were. You know, so I would come up with an idea I thought was really unique and I'd go search and there's 500 songs by that title already. I'd go, <laughs> oh man, back to the drawing board. But I found this one uh, that there was no other song in either BMI or ASCAP with this title. And I thought, okay, this one's unique enough to ask Tom. And so I would call, I called Tom, said, I've got this idea, um, if you know if you like it would you write it with me and, and he asked me what it was and i told him and he said tuesday at two o'clock and i'm <laughs> like oh my goodness you know and, and so i, I kind of had that relationship with all those guys like i would never ask them just to book an appointment with me i would wait until i had something that i i was confident that they would really like and then i would hit them up with this idea and that kind of you know over time they got to trust me and we you know, develop a relationship and we could just book something, but they knew I was always going to bring in hundreds of ideas. I had a database. I had, you know, seven or 800 ideas in. And so we were never going to sit around and fish around for something to write. I was always going to have something, but that's how I got started writing with those guys. Wow. Wow. Um, well, before we let you go, we, you know, we started kind of talking about Songtown and what you guys are doing. And one thing we didn't talk about is your um, book writing efforts. You, you've done a book called Song Building, How to Write Better Songs Faster, um, and the Songwriter's Guide to Mastering Co-Writing. Both uh, books uh, with Bill O'Hanlon, who is a, an avid uh, songcraft listener, friend of the show, um, but talk a bit about um, what you hope to to bring 
to to folks with those books specifically that that maybe you're not able to do with the with the podcast or the articles and then also just the discipline of sitting down and and you know writing a book and in what ways that's a different process than writing a song um well i have a a little bit of a short attention span and so writing a a three-minute song for me is more gratifying in many ways than sitting down for months and writing a book, you know? So <laughs> I enjoy the songwriting process more. Um, I felt like, you know, in the, in the co-writing book, there's not a book about that. And one of the, one of the things we see so often in Songtown is that conflict between co-writers because they didn't talk about how they're going to demo something or they're not, they didn't talk about who to pitch songs to, and somebody pitches this great song to their cousin Billy who's putting out an independent record, and the other songwriters get upset, and they don't understand that one person can license it. You know what I mean? And all these just messes people get into while co-writing. And then just some etiquette things, too. Like, you know, it always irked me when I would come in and somebody would say, well, I got nothing today. What you got? You know, I'm like, well, why are you here? Why did you show up? <laughs> right. So the co-writing book was is sort of, it's a, it's a lot of stories about bad co-writing experiences and um, mistakes that, that Clay and I made while, while co-writing or, or mistakes we were a part of in a co-writing yeah. session uh, just to help people avoid some of that stuff and, and to help people be better collaborators. And we, I've had a publisher in Nashville tell me that, uh, he said, I, I can tell when um, Songtown people come and work with my writers because they know how to co-write. They know how things work and that kind of thing. And so we thought, well, you know, let's just reach a broader audience with that and write a book. Huh. And then in the wow. song building book, um, and we actually changed the name of that to Song Building, Mastering Lyric Writing. Because after we did it, I thought, I don't care how fast somebody writes a song. I don't know why, why <laughs> I put that. Um, but... Uh, that one I've developed after we started Songtown. I, I had to kind of break down some of my methods if I was going to teach them. And so once I started doing that, I realized some that my hit songs had certain patterns and things that I did that I did had never been taught formally anywhere. And so I thought, you know, I want to write a book about that and and kind of help people with that. So it's a process that I teach in Songtown. And when I do mentoring with people, I teach them this technique. Um, but again, it's just a, you know, a way to help other people that maybe aren't a part of Songtown. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the fun things about doing this podcast is just talking to writers about the impact they've made on the music world. And it's, what's really cool about this one is the impact you've made, not only with your hit songs, but with the other writers that you're passing information to. It's like you're raising up an army of new songwriters. So um, thank you for sharing your songs with the world and also for sharing your knowledge with the songwriting world. Um, And we're just really happy and honored to have you as our guest today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you. So please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. 
Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.